Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, there's a certain kind of joy that we experience when in worship we abandon our our hearts and express ourselves to you. We sing words, some of us feel like we can enter in with a full reality to the words that we sing. Others of us have come and our hearts are weary. We've had a difficult week. The experiences put us in a different kind of a mood, a down mood. So singing the songs that we sing to you tonight, we've had to sing them by faith. And we've had to sing them not because we feel that way, but because they're true about who you are. And that's really what the essence of worship is, declaring the truth of who you are by the songs we sing and by our willingness to listen to your voice in your word. We pray, Father, that the questions that we have, the issues that we're dealing with, and the sorrows that may weigh down hearts, We pray, Father, that your spirit, the spirit of the living God, would minister to your people during this time. We also know that many are joining us online, watching via computer, dealing with their own life circumstances. And we pray, Lord, that there would would be no limitation. Your spirit would minister to them as well. In Jesus' name, amen. In our day and age, atheism, agnosticism, relativism sort of rule the day in terms of prevalent philosophies. At the same time, there is a sense of spirituality among many people, but it's the kind of generic spirituality that doesn't tie into one particular religion, but open to all things spiritual. A USA Today poll revealed that 95% of American teenagers believe in at least one supernatural phenomenon. Of that 95% of teenagers that believe that there is some supernatural spiritual force 74 of them, 74% of the 95, claim to believe in angels. 50% of them claim to believe in the power of extrasensory perception. 29% of them uh, believe in witchcraft. 22% believe in ghosts, and 16% say they believe in the Loch Ness Monster. I don't know how that fits in, but it was in the poll. The Bible reveals that there is a natural world. We know that to be true. But also, what's more important, it reveals a supernatural world, that God initiated it, rules over it, created the natural world 
mankind upon it, but also behind the scenes there is a real evil called Satan. Most of the polling that I have read in different books, magazines, articles, when they talk about the beliefs of Americans, um, even most people who believe in God deny the existence of a literal devil or a literal hell. You know, Satan, the devil, that's just, that's the stuff songs are made out of. Devil was with the red dress on. Uh, The devil went down to Georgia. Devil in her heart. And so many songs that speak of the devil, thus, that's all that there really must be. It must just be a word to describe the, the essence of evil that exists in the world. The Bible recognizes the reality of Satan. On six different occasions in the Gospels, Jesus confronts evil and casts demons that are inhabiting human bodies, casts the demons out of the person. That there was the reality of demon possession controlling the motor functions of a human body. Sometimes the demons would manifest themselves with an enormous amount of power so that even chains could not hold that person down. At other times, it was accompanied with physical sickness. Jesus would heal the sickness and deliver the person from demons. Sixty-three times in the New Testament, the word demon appears. Daimonion is the Greek word. Sometimes referred to as an unclean spirit but certainly affirms the reality of it. In verse 22, we read, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Is this the long-awaited Messiah for which our forefathers have longed and waited and told us about? The son of David, the offspring of King David himself, the one who will bring in the Davidic messianic kingdom. And this was the intended response of Jesus' miraculous works. To get people to ask this question and then follow it through logically. Could this be the son of David? I've had my own experiences with the demonic. Not only in seeing people who are legitimately demon-possessed and seeing what they're capable of doing, and in those cases having to exercise those demons. And when I say exercise, I mean exorcise, not exercise. I don't have them lift weights and do 20 laps around the church. That's not the idea of exercising a demon. But having, with the authority of Jesus Christ, the demon unleash the grip that that spirit has had upon that life. Another reason I know it to be real is that before I was a Christian, and I've told you my testimony, I dabbled myself 
in the occult. I was very, very curious and interested in all things demonic. I think a lot of kids are. They dabble and are curious with the dark side. And so I astral projected. I was involved in spirit writing, asking demons to inhabit my body and give me messages from past lives that I believed that I lived. Receiving revelations from entities I had no idea even existed before that time and getting really in touch with the powers of darkness. For me, as I was raised in a um, church environment, but dabbling in these powers that satisfied my curiosity, but not enough because it just brought me deeper and deeper and deeper into it. One day I thought to myself, I thought, I'm experiencing such power and I'm fascinated by it. But if what I have been taught by my parents, that there is a God and a heaven and a hell and a real devil, if I'm dealing with the wrong side, and according to how I was raised, this is the wrong side. But if there's this much power on the wrong side, if I got my life right with God and got in tune and in touch with the right side, what kind of power would there be? That's what got me thinking. Now, we produced a documentary called Shattered. Some of you have seen it. Many of you perhaps haven't. But we, we uncover all of the powers of darkness in the media especially because kids are still into this stuff. And uh, part of it illustrates my testimony. It's just about two minutes, so we're going to roll that clip, and then we'll get back into our study. I traveled to Mexico with my high school Spanish class. We were going to go down there and immerse ourselves in the culture. It was a beautiful setting, Mazatlan, Mexico. One night, I wanted to do what's called spirit writing. And spirit writing is where uh, instead of your soul traveling, you're just concentrating on other souls of other entities who could give you information. And spirit writing is where you ask the spirit world to control your body and to give you messages. And I began getting into a trance-like state and all the while asking spirits to control me. out of the trance and I read the message. The message was legible and clear. It told me that indeed I did live before this body, that my ancestry went all the way back to the Franco-Prussian War, that I was a soldier in the Prussian army. I died in that war. My life began several lives back. I was somebody else. And so I thought, that's my history. That's my ancestry. So I started connecting these little dots going, wow, that's really who I am.
skip. Close the door, would you? It's freezing in here. I now know that what I was dealing with was pure deception, experiences indeed uh, given to me to feed my curiosity, to feed my, my lust for experience, my lust for power, uh, so that that would keep me away from faith in Christ. Anything that will keep a person away from Jesus Christ, Satan will give to a person because he doesn't want them to encounter the truth. This feeds into a question we had a couple weeks ago, maybe last week, about demon possession it was a few weeks ago is how come we don't see demon possession as much today and my answer was well i don't know that we don't see it as much especially in certain parts of the world but my own experience is that the devil is a master deceiver if he can deceive you and keep you away from christ possession isn't necessary some people would see possession and the exorcism of a demon and go, whoa, that was so powerful, I'm going to believe. But the deception part, the blinding of the eyes. You know, if you've ever read the book Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, where he writes from a senior tempter, really Satan instructing his nephew Wormwood on how to ruin people's lives and keep them away from the truth. In the book, Screwtape who's supposed to be like the devil, writes to his nephew and he says, the issue really isn't wickedness as much as indifference. And he said, I will always see to it that there are bad people. Your job, my dear Wormwood, is to simply provide me with people who don't care. If people can marginalize evil, Satan, the dark side, and just say, well, that's just the dark side of human nature. There's not a real entity. You know, there's no more dangerous an enemy than one that you do not believe exists, who is powerfully behind the scenes exercising his own power. Well, here's a man who has been controlled by a demon, demon-possessed, demonized would be a better term, is physically sick, Jesus presumably cast the demon out as well as heals the man. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. In other words, this Jesus fella, he must be in league with the devil himself, using supernatural power to do tricks just to get a crowd. He wants to get a crowd. He has his own lust for power. And so he's in league with the devil who's allowed him to perform certain tricks in order to get that crowd. There was a prevailing belief that Jesus was a magician or a sorcerer. And I say prevailing, it was a lingering belief that can be found in rabbinic literature even after the New Testament. In rabbinic literature and in the pagan writings, 
in Greco-Roman writings, there was the rumor that Jesus was a sorcerer, a magician, that he, he controlled powerful supernatural forces and used those forces to heal people or to control the demonic. And so they are making that kind of an accusation. Now, they use the term Beelzebub. What does that mean and where does it come from? We first read about Beelzebub in the book of 2 Kings chapter 1. When a king of Israel named Ahaziah, who was up in Samaria, fell through the lattice in his upper room and fell down into the lower courtyard, and he got hurt. And he wanted to know if he was going to get better. So he sent messengers, it says, down into the Philistine country to inquire of Bilzebub to see if he would get better. Now, Beelzebub, or the better, the original name was Baal, B-A-A-L, Baalzebub. And uh, every time you read in the Old Testament, Baal or Baal, that means the Lord. That's a Ugaritic term or a Chaldean term that speaks of the Lord. And then it's followed by another word that tells you what domain that Lord is the Lord over. So Baalzebub is thought to be originally Baalzebul. And I say that because there are some New Testament translations that don't say Beelzebub, but Beelzebul. So you go, what what are you talking about? The term Beelzebul is a word that means the master of the high place or the lord of the heavenly realms. Baalzebub, or here Beelzebub, means the lord of the flies, or the lord of the dung, that is waste, human waste. It is believed that the original term was Beelzebul, and it got retranslated by the Jews, Beelzebub, as a derogatory statement against a false god. Beelzebul was the god of Ekron, a Philistine city down south. But the Jews used the term Beelzebub. He's not the lord of the high place or the heavenly dwelling. He's the lord of the flies or the lord of dung. And they used that term as a formal term for Satan himself. It's just one of their derogatory terms to speak of the devil. So the accusation is he's in league with one of the false gods, and we call him by name Beelzebub, referring to Satan. Now Jesus responds. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. Carefully observe the crystal clear thinking and the perfect logic of Jesus. Now boys, think this through. You're accusing me of being in league with the devil. So you're saying that I, by Satan's power and casting out an emissary of Satan who's controlling this person's body. Why would Satan do that? 
why would Satan cast out Satan? And he says a a kingdom or a family or a city divided against itself cannot stand. A civil war always weakens a nation, always weakens a city. If I'm doing this by Satan's power, then I'm diminishing Satan's kingdom. How could I be in league with Satan if I'm undermining his kingdom if I'm working for him? It's illogical. You guys aren't thinking clearly. And he continues and he says, And if I cast out demons, verse 27, by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Now the word sons refers to their associates or their disciples. The ones that are following them around and learning about Judaism through these rabbis. So here you are attributing what I'm doing to Satan. But you would not attribute what your sons, your disciples are doing when they cast out demons. You wouldn't say that their power is also from the devil. So you are attributing the same power and the same results to two different sources. It's illogical. Crystal clear thinking and perfect logic. When you get to the book of Acts, in chapter 19, there's a story of Paul being at Ephesus. And there were a group of Jewish itinerant exorcists. They went around casting demons out of people. That was their job. I'd hate that job. Like the world's worst job. Find people who are demon-possessed. It's just like every single day, what a drag it would be at the office. But this is what they did. They were self-proclaimed Jewish itinerant exorcists. And there was a man demon-possessed in Ephesus, and they heard the name of Jesus as used by Paul the Apostle. So these men, there were seven of them, seven sons of a Jewish chief priest named Sceva, went into a house where this man was demon-possessed and said these words, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, we command you to come out, or we're exercising you. And the demon who possessed the man spoke, using the human voice of, of the host that he was occupying, the body he was occupying. And the demon said, Well, I know Paul, and I know who Jesus is, But I don't know who you guys are. And it says that man, controlled by the demon, leapt on those seven sons of Sceva and pummeled them, like tore them to shreds so that they all ran out of the house, I should say streaked out of the house, bruised and naked. So they underestimated the power of Satan and they underestimated the power of Jesus from the life of a person who's truly in league with Jesus. That would be Paul. Paul could say, in the name of Jesus, come out. He had a relationship with Christ. These were Jewish itinerant evangelists who just borrowed the name, but had no relationship. If you do a little digging into church history, you find out that it's not an isolated event. According to Origen, in the third century, there were people that were using the name of Jesus because they saw that it had worked by Christians. So they tried to use the name, borrow the name as an incantation, but without power. But verse 28 is a key verse. 
But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. You're attributing my power to satanic origin. I'm saying, have you considered that my power may not be from the Spirit of the living God? Because if that is true, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Why? Because three times in the Old Testament book of Isaiah... Isaiah predicted the coming Messiah, the servant of the Lord, as one who would be filled with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, and do signs and wonders through the Spirit of God. Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 42, and Isaiah chapter 61. So this is a messianic claim. And so he's turning it around on them with clear logic, with perspicuity, with clear thinking. He says, I could be doing this by the Spirit of God. Then what does that mean for you guys? Which would mean like, uh-oh, we've just rejected the Messiah. We have a um, text that has been texted in from Santa Fe. By the way, we didn't uh, welcome Santa Fe, but uh, we do welcome you now. We have a uh, text from Santa Fe. And it says, is there a difference between demon possession and demon oppression? It's an excellent question. Yes, there is. There's quite a difference. Anyone can be oppressed, hassled by the devil. Not anyone can be demon possessed. To be demonized is to be under the control, the total control of a demon. You lose power. You lose will. You're a host Satan has occupied your body, is controlling the motor functions of your mind. And he is using your body as sort of headquarters to torment that person and to torment people around him. As believers, we can be oppressed. I get oppressed all the time by the devil. I get hassled all the time. I'm a target. You're a target. But I cannot be possessed by the devil. Why? Because... As Paul said, since the Spirit of God is in me, and I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, God is not going to share the apartment with a demon. He's not going to say, tell you what, Satan, come on in and just have this part, but I'll dwell over here in the corner. That doesn't mean that you're a a perfect person as you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but He does indwell you Physically, your, your physical body, He indwells you. You become the base of operations for the Holy Spirit to move. God isn't going to let a demon share the apartment. Greater is He that is in you, John writes, than he that is in the world. Satan operates in the realm of the world. And can possess people who are in league with the world, but not in league with the Spirit of God. So yes, there is quite a difference. Verse 29, our Lord continues. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. The house that he refers to in that first verse, verse 29, It's the human body. A house is the realm of a person's not only dwelling, but power and authority. The strong man is 
Satan. The stronger man, the one who comes in to bind the strong man, is Jesus. And so he says, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? That's what Jesus is doing with the man who is demon-possessed. He's binding the strong man. He, as an outside force, is exercising more authority than the demon who occupied that man before Jesus cast him out. So he's going into the house, binding the strong man, and casting him out. And he will plunder his house. The Pharisees could not deny the power of Jesus. He performed miracles. They were able to see or at least hear about that man who was demonized, and now he's free. They couldn't deny his power, but but they had to explain it. And uh, the way they explained it, illogically and wrong theologically, was that it must be the devil. Jesus says, it's impossible. The reality is that I am... Empowered by the Spirit of God, proving that I am the Messiah according to the prophet Isaiah. And I am a stronger man than the one who is occupying the man. And I've come in and I've bound him and I've cast him out and I've set the person in it free. Now there's another way to look at it. The binding of the strong man or the binding of Satan on a worldwide scale not in a particular individual scale like we're dealing with here, but on a worldwide scale, will take place in stages. Now follow me here. The first stage is when Jesus came to this earth and exercised power in his public ministry, like we're reading about. That's stage number one. The second stage is death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. When Jesus died and, and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, he guaranteed the ultimate binding of Satan by that power. The third stage will be a reality stage worldwide in the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, Revelation chapter 20, when Satan is bound in Hades during that period, the Bible says. And then the ultimate binding of the strong man will be when Satan is cast into the eternal lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20. Now I'm bringing that out because here is Jesus delivering a person who's demonized from the power of Satan. It's a man coming in who is stronger than the strong man of the house. But at the same time, it sure seems like Satan has a lot of power today. That he has a freedom to move around, which he does. And I'm bringing all this up because I hear people when they pray sometimes. They'll say, I bind you devil. First of all, you shouldn't be talking directly to the devil. Never pray to Satan. Bad form. Satan, I bind you. No, stop. Talk to Jesus about Satan. Don't talk to Satan about Jesus. But they say, like they have the authority, I'm binding Satan. Well, do me a favor. If you bind him, would you do it once and for all? Because he keeps coming back. It's really a charade. We don't bind Satan. Jesus binds Satan. And until that final binding takes place, Satan has a lot of 
ability to roam around and exercise a degree of power. If he didn't, we wouldn't see all the evil that is around us in this world. It's pretty obvious. So if you think you have the power to bind Satan, just like go through society and, and all the world, take a map with you and just cover, cover all your bases, get it done with. But the fact that you don't see lasting results shows that it's just often a Christian game that is played. Now go with me to the book of Job for just a moment, or I'll just read it to you since I pre-marked it again. Job chapter 1, and you'll see what I mean. Now there was a day when the sons of God, this is Job chapter 1, verse 6, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Here is Satan in the presence of God showing up to give an account. Now first of all, when did Satan become Satan? What was he before Satan? He was Lucifer. He was an angel, the highest ranking angel of worship in the heavenly realm. But he said in his heart, according to the prophet, I will exalt my stars above the throne of God. I will be like the Most High. And he was, at that point of self-will, cast down from the presence of God, from the throne room of God. And Lucifer became Satan. He was expelled as an occupant, but according to Job 1 and 2, he has access to God as a visitor. So Satan is among them. And the Lord said to Satan, verse 7, From where do you come? And so Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth. That's his domain. He's been cast down to the earth. Lucky us. And from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. What is, what is Satan doing? As you read on, he's accusing Job before God, which is what he does with us. Revelation chapter 12, he's called the accuser of the brethren who accuses us before God day and night. He brings an accusation against Job. Here it's a false accusation with many of us. It may be a false accusation, might be a true accusation. He's got the dirt on us, right? He could say, hey, God, have you looked at Skip? He's no good. He's just using you. He's a creep. And he could come up with accusations. Some are false, but many of them may be true. He's accusing Job before God's throne. Satan is powerful. Satan is mobile. Satan has some kind of access today to the throne of God. He is not totally bound yet. And as Jonathan Edwards reminded us, because Satan was Lucifer... He was trained in the heaven of heavens. He said he's quite an astute theologian who knows the Bible from cover to cover and theology backward and forward. And he can even quote scripture, which we saw in the temptation of Jesus. So the final binding of the strong man 
is going to be ultimately when Satan is bound during the millennial kingdom, has no access anymore to the earth. He's completely removed from this earthly scene for a thousand literal years. And then he'll be thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation 20. Continuing the thought back in Matthew, Jesus says in verse 30, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Makes sense. Here is Jesus trying to do the job of the harvest, trying to gather in those. He, he looked at the people who were, who, who were scattered out on the field in Matthew chapter 9 as sheep having no shepherd. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. He's trying to gather them in. And Satan's emissaries, who are the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, are making the job difficult. Now, we do have another scripture that we have to contend with. Here Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. If you read an account in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 40, Jesus says almost the reverse of this. He, who, Well, let's read it. Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Look at it. I'm bringing it up because if not, you'll read it later and it could stumble you. And I don't know how long it'll be before we get to the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 9. Verse 38, now John answered him, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he doesn't follow us. Sounds like some people I know. But Jesus said, do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. It seems like a reversal of what we just read in Matthew. And so we might just say, well, you know, if that person's not against us, he must be one of us. That's not what he is saying. Here's something that will help you unravel this mystery. In Matthew, Jesus is speaking of salvation. In Mark, he's speaking of service. In Matthew, he's speaking about false proclaimers, the Pharisees and the scribes. There's no neutrality. If you're not for me personally, Jesus said, if you're not with me personally, you are against me. You're getting in the way of what I'm all about. But Mark is talking about service to the Lord. Here's people using the name of Jesus to cast demons out, and evidently it's working. I don't know what the circumstance referred to. But Jesus said, let them alone. If they're not against us, not me personally, us, what we're doing, our work, our service, then they're for us. Now, these disciples were more concerned about their little way of doing things, their sectarianism, their if you will, denominationalism, and less concerned about people who are set free from demons. And that's why Jesus said, let them alone. Let them go. If they're not against us and what we're doing, they're for us. Remember in the Old Testament, when Joshua came to Moses, there were two guys in the camp of Israel prophesying named Eldad and Medad. 
Do you remember them? Eldad and Medad were prophesying in the camp. Joshua goes up to Moses and said, Moses, there's two guys that are like doing your job. They're like prophesying and only you're the guy to do that. You're the guy filled with the Spirit. You're Moses. He said, go tell them to stop. Moses said, huh, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all God's people could prophesy and that all of them were filled with the Spirit. I wish the whole camp of Israel were prophesying. I wish they were all used by God in this capacity. That's the spirit that Jesus is getting toward here with his disciples. Listen, as Christian churches, as long as we hold to the essentials of the Christian gospel, the non-essentials, who cares about them? Who cares about the little non-essentials? Some Christians bicker and fight and divide over the stupidest things. I look at it this way. As long as you agree on the essentials of the true Christian gospel, the person, nature, and work of Jesus Christ, you're my brother or my sister. And if you're a part of this church or another church like it, we're all branch offices of the same business. And if God blesses one branch office, we're all blessed together. If He blesses another branch office, we're all blessed together. We're just branch offices of the same international business, and that is God's business. So Jesus says, let them alone. But in Matthew, He's speaking about His own personal. He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore... Now that's a very important word in the next verse because I left you hanging last week with what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Notice Jesus speaks about what the Pharisees have said about Him, draws the line and says, you're either for me or against me, and then the word therefore connecting the thought. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven Men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. There are some people, there are some commentators, there are some biblical authorities who will say that it's impossible to commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit today. The reason they say that is Jesus isn't here in the flesh performing miracles. He's not, he's not in physicality performing the kind of signs and wonders where these people were speaking against him. So it's impossible to commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the same way. Okay, whatever. Push that aside. The word therefore draws for us the context, as I mentioned. And therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Okay. Every time there's a therefore, you know the rule, find out what it's there for. Right? They have just attributed a miraculous work and control over a part of the supernatural world, demons, they've ascribed that to the work of Satan. They've ascribed what Jesus did in his power to Satan. And then Jesus says, therefore, talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Their sin wasn't in what they said as much as an attitude of their heart. 
They sinned against the Holy Spirit. They are blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Why? Because what is the role of the Holy Spirit? Ask yourself that. What what did the Holy Spirit come here to do? To lead us to Christ. To convict the world of sin, Jesus said, righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me, he said. So, if the task of the Holy Spirit is to make a person realize their need for Christ, who he is as sent from God, and to draw a person in a relationship with Christ, to reject Jesus Christ, the person of Christ, is to reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit. That's the role of the Spirit of God. So what these, what these Pharisees were saying that Jesus is in league with the devil and he's doing this by Satan, proves that they have a condition of heart, that they have so rejected Christ, that they have rejected the testimony of the Spirit of God that has proved to them who Jesus is. So it's it's more than just saying, I think that guy did that by Satan's work. It's a condition of the heart that they have so rejected Jesus Christ that they're willing to attribute what Jesus did to Satan. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. I believe that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is what John writes about in 1 John chapter 5 when he says, There is a sin unto death, and I do not say that you should pray for it. The sin unto death is the deliberate turning one's back and rejection of Jesus Christ. And it's that ongoing rejection of Jesus Christ so that if a person dies in that condition of rejecting the very Jesus that the Holy Spirit came to convict you of, that that sin can never be forgiven, ever. All manner of sin can be forgiven, but it's the rejection of Christ That's the testimony of the Spirit of God that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. There's an old poem that says, There is a time we know not when, a line we know not where, that marks the destiny of man betwixt sorrow and despair. There is a line, though by man unseen, once it has been crossed, even God in all his love has sworn that all is lost. It is possible for a person to cross a line to where that human becomes what Paul describes as a reprobate mind. Beyond feeling, beyond the ability to redeem. Now, i got to tell you something. I don't know that I've ever met a person like that. I may have. I probably have. But I don't know that I have. It's not like they have a little red flag or light reprobate, reprobate, reprobate. And you can say, oh, well, I have. And I meet people all the time. And they're they're so against Jesus. Yeah, but I've seen people who are so against Jesus today in a few years come up to me and say, I'm a believer. So I don't write anybody off. And I don't think anybody can be written off until the day they die. Only God knows who's committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, every now and then, I'll meet somebody who is worried that they've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I've done it. I've done what? That's what a girl said to me. I've done it. I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I said, no, you haven't. She goes, how do you know? I said, because you're worried about it. (laughs) If, If you have any inkling that it's a mistake you think you have made and you're worried that you have done it, you haven't done it. The kind of heart that Jesus describes here that the Pharisees exhibited, that's very different than somebody who's tender-hearted and worried that they have transgressed by committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. He's exposing their inconsistency. You guys make up your mind. You're willing to say that if somebody is freed from Satan's power, that it must be the devil at work, and yet you have your own associates and disciples who do it. Look at the, look at the fruit. Look at what this life has produced. I've cured the sick. I've raised the dead. Blind eyes see. Ears that were deaf can now hear. That's pretty good fruit. That must mean there's a good tree behind it. You can always tell a tree by its fruit. When my wife and I moved here in our early years, I rented a home up in the Northeast Heights. It was wintertime, but I knew that the trees in the backyard were fruit trees. I'm not all that bright, but I'm bright enough to know they were fruit trees. And so my wife said, well, what kind of fruit trees are they? And I said, oh, those are apple trees. She said, I don't think they are. I think, that, I think those are peach trees. I said, no, no, trust me. I, I, I've been around apple trees. I grew up with them. That's an apple tree. I think you're wrong. I think that's a peach tree. By spring and summer, it was beyond doubt because they budded and they bore forth fruit. Peaches. <laughs> I was dead wrong. She was absolutely correct. The tree is known by its fruit. Oh, you're right. That's a peach tree. How do you know? It's got peaches. That's how I knew. She knew before, but it took fruit. Lives produce fruit, results, effects. By the way, Jesus calls us to be fruit inspectors. People sometimes like to say, Well, you should never judge people. Yeah, you should. A lot. All the time. Jesus said, judge ye a righteous judgment. That's a commandment. Yeah, but didn't Jesus say, judge not, lest you be judged? That's right. You can never censoriously judge a person, committing that person to everlasting destruction. You don't know the heart at that time, or you don't know the future of what God will do. However... You can look into the life of a person, what that person produces, and by the fruit you can say, that person's a child of God, or it sure looks like there's no fruit that would indicate that person's a child of God. Be a fruit inspector, but begin with your own tree. Look in your own backyard. Look at what your own life is producing. Because once you have good fruit you'll be able to tell what other good fruit is. Not because you read about it somewhere, but because you lived it. Verse 34 didn't win Jesus any points with him. Brood of vipers, he says. That's what John the Baptist called them, remember? He was right. Jesus calls them a brood of vipers. A brood, um, those are children or offspring. Here's a modern translation. You sons of slimy snakes. Now, if Jesus says that to you, look out. How can you, being evil, that's the kind of tree that they are, speak good things? 
For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The venomous words that were brought forth from their mouths because of the wicked, venomous thoughts of their own hearts. The fruit was what they said. The real tree was the wicked heart that was against Jesus Christ. The abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, the bucket of the mouth reveals the wellspring of the heart. What you say, at least eventually, reflects who you are in your heart. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you, for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned. Now don't misunderstand what he is saying. If you're a believer, if you have come to Jesus Christ, you've come to God by faith in His Son, then the price for the penalty of your sins, no matter what your sins are, including the sins of speech, are atoned for. So it's not like Jesus will say, well, remember that one day when you said that bad word? Okay, so you got to do like, you know, Five years here before you can get in. You are saved by faith, by grace, through faith. So the penalty of that is taken care of. However, however, there is something called the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ that he writes, Paul writes about in Corinthians. And it talks about the rewards that you will get or the lack of a reward, a loss of a reward from the Lord. So you're rewarded by your obedience to Christ. You lose rewards on your disobedience. That is not salvation by works. You're saved by God's grace. It's free. You're going to heaven. But in heaven, there will be degrees of rewards that are handed out. The Bible's very clear about that. So you may, by your own words, lose certain rewards that you could have gotten. But you are going to be in God's heaven. You will be eternally with Him. This is not an issue of that. But these who have indicated that Jesus is being controlled by Satan, that's the fruit. And so he says, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Our mouths get us into trouble. Would you agree? Have you ever said something, and as soon as you said it, you go, Oh, I want to put it right back in, and you can't. It's gone. It's too late. happens to me all the time. I talk a lot. In Proverbs 6, there's a list of seven things that God hates. Now, just the fact that there is such a list should pique your interest. Because if you want to find out what God not just dislikes, what He hates, go read the list. Not now, later. Find it right now. No, just find it later. Proverbs 6. Three of the seven things that God hates are sins of the tongue. What does that tell you? The tongue gets us into trouble. James said it's a fire and it it is set on fire by hell. James said, if a person can control his tongue, that same man is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. 
And some people, some Christian people, run off at the mouth. There are sins of the mouth. Lying, deceit, half-truths, ornery remarks, hateful remarks, gossip. Hey, have you heard? No. Well, you know, I just wanted... I want to get a lot of people praying for this, so... There was a woman named Arabella Young who lived in England, and she had this problem. And I hear that on her tombstone are these words. Beneath this stone, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. It was her death that stopped her mouth. She couldn't keep it closed. She ran off at the mouth. That was the one thing that ruined it for her. But it was her death that stopped it all. So what we say is important and it reflects the kind of heart that we have. If you're a a negative person and you spout off hurtful, vengeful, mean things or gossip, it reveals the kind of heart that you have. Keep your heart with all diligence, it says in Proverbs, for out of it proceed the issues of life. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, I can't believe it's the time it is already. I'll make it fast. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and saying, Teacher, (laughs) we want to see a sign from you. Hello, what has he been doing for the last several months? Sign, wonder, sign, wonder, sign, wonder. Excuse me, Jesus, could we like see a sign? Uh, I'd say, no. It reveals their hypocrisy because he's been doing sign after sign after sign. One more sign is not going to convince them. And so Jesus answers. An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth, or three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. First of all, notice that Jesus believed in a literal man named Jonah who was swallowed by a great fish. If you don't believe that, you're welcome to believe whatever you want. Just don't say, oh, I follow Jesus. You don't follow the same Jesus I follow because the Jesus I follow believed it. And he wasn't just saying it to accommodate the ignorance of the people of his time, as some people say. He spoke of it as historical fact. And he called them into judgment over it. He says, basically, I'm not going to give you any more sign. The ultimate sign will be my death, burial, and resurrection. The sign of Jonah was the fact that this man survived after being in a great fish for three days, three nights. And he came out alive and spoke to the people of Nineveh. You know the story. It's very famous in the Old Testament. Jonah himself was the sign. He was swallowed. 
and disgorged from... Did you like how I put that? Instead of vomited out, it was disgorged from the great fish. Now, from the accounts that I have read, people who have survived similar accounts... Their hair is completely off of their head. Their skin is bleached white from the stomach acid. So I imagine a guy looking like that, a bald prophet, bleached white, seaweed around his head, fish, bloop, out of his ear. That would be a sign. This guy's alive after that. The sign of the prophet Jonah is the sign that you're going to see, and that's really the only sign. That's the ultimate sign. My resurrection from the dead attests to who I am when that happens. Then he says the men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn it because Jonah came all that way to see them, and they repented. You didn't have to go anywhere. I came all the way out of heaven to see you, which is greater than what Jonah did, and you haven't received my words. The queen of the south or the queen of Sheba will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth, a long, arduous journey, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and he finds none. And he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it. Empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. That is a heavy verse. It seems to be talking about the same thing we started with, and that is demon possession. A man is released from the bondage of Satan. And then he finds that that house is not occupied, so he brings back other spirits with him. What possibly could he mean? Well, once again, we're at the breaking point. Wanted to finish chapter 12 and do all of chapter 13 next week. I won't even say it. (laughs) Father, thank you that we were able to meet again by your grace. We know we have a powerful foe. We know what his temptations are like. We are not ignorant of Satan's devices. We experience his attacks on a daily basis. We also know that the Spirit of the living God dwells within us. And you are able to do what we cannot do on our own. That is why we declare we desperately need you. Fill us afresh with your spirit. That we might walk in his power and his authority. Not our own. Give us your grace, Lord. And help us to make application of these things to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org.
If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.